on Rugby Wrap-Up. Did World Rugby and the RFU place players at higher risk of concussion for research purposes? Doctors White and Pierce answer that and more. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by The Pig and Whistle, the world's best rugby pub. The Murphy Kennedy Group, founded with the idea that construction can be done better. And Lean and Limber, stretching your way to a healthier lifestyle. Hey everybody and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy in Midtown Manhattan talking rugby and today we have some heady stuff, pun intended, with doctors Adam White out of England and Mr. Dr. Alan Pierce from Melbourne, Australia. Gentlemen, I'll start with Adam first. Adam, welcome. Thank you for coming on. I know we're, we're stretching time zones specifically with Alan, but th thanks for coming on. Uh, just tell us who you are briefly. Yeah, no, thank you, Matt, for, for having us on the show today and, and really pleased to, to be here. Um, so I'm a lecturer in sport and coaching sciences um, at Oxford Brookes University in the UK. Um, and I have a particular interest in injuries and concussion in rugby and, and most importantly, how we can protect players better whilst they're playing our great game. Um, something that I'm really passionate about and, you know, I think is, is super important, particularly around concussion. Um, but I think the issue we're talking today about is how we can do good science that doesn't treat players like lambs to slaughter or lab rats. That's, that's a good opening. I like that. And we're going to pick up on that. But let me turn over to your colleague, Dr. Uh, Alan Pierce. Alan, you are down in Melbourne, Australia. And you are in footyville, if you will. It's not rugby, but it's footy down by you. So you've had to uh, get up to speed on rugby. Not that footies tennis by any stretch of the imagination and you have your, you certainly have your head injuries in, in that great sport as well but uh mm -hmm. what, is, what is your background sir yeah so i'm a, i'm a associate professor in neuroscience i i look at the mechanisms of concussion from a physiological or biological perspective i've uh, been doing this work now for about 12 years um when things started to pick up in Australia in terms of head injuries and concussion, particularly in Australian rules football, but also in rugby as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing work trying to look at what is happening to the brain when someone actually gets concussed and how long do they, you know, return to play. And that's one of the big issues that we're trying to deal with at the moment. But at the same time, I'm also looking at uh, what happens after 20 or 30 years when they've retired, they've had a history of head trauma, be it concussions or just, you know, sub-concussive hits where you don't get the symptoms, you know, hundreds or thousands of times. Uh, and then what happens 20 or 30 years later that we're seeing, you know, similarly on the, on the same lines as the uh, ex-NFL players. Well, I think I could save you guys a whole bunch of time and money. Uh, because I could tell you what happens to the brain after a series of concussions uh, incurred in rugby and ice hockey and football. One starts a rugby show out of New York City and tries to cover rugby for a living in the United States. That's what happens 20 years after these things. <laughs> Just kidding. Is uh, that a pathology? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a mea culpa, if you will. But on a serious note, you are from La Trobe University in Melbourne, if I'm not mistaken, and the Neuro Pierce group? Well, that's, that's my website. So uh, I, I, uh, we could do a whole other show on why yeah. I'm sort of running on my, my own down under at the moment. Um, 
uh, there, there has been some, um, you know, stories in the public domain about uh, my uh, experiences and my journey in, in doing this research that has obviously rubbed um, other people the wrong way um, because uh, obviously what I've been studying and publishing uh, has, has kind of gone against what uh, a lot of the sports don't want to hear. And Adam, you are from Ox, uh, Oxford Brooks University, uh, not to be confused with Oxford University like I did, but your, your school, your university is one of the, in the top 50 globally out of universities under the age of 50. And uh, you are not foreign to the game of rugby. You've played rugby, you've refereed rugby, so you've been around the game uh, quite a bit. And as, as Alan has just said, you're, you're going down the rabbit hole. It's not making you the most popular guy in the pub. Yeah, I, I think um, both Alan and I are well uh, well versed in not being the, the person that's most popular. But, you know, I think it's about speaking the truth to power when, when there are things that are going wrong. Um, you know, and, and I really love rugby. I think it's an absolutely fantastic sport and, you know, really passionate about it. But that doesn't mean I'm going to turn a blind eye when we're doing absolutely uh, unethical, um, terrible things, you know, and, and I think it takes... Um, brave and courageous people to stand up and say, "Hang on a minute, we need to, we need to stop this and look at what's really going on here." And um, unfortunately, those people didn't arrive. So me and Alan have done it instead. And you've got some other colleagues, right? You've got, uh, if I'm not mistaken, John Batten, Gary Turner, Rachel Bullingham, and Eric Anderson. Not to be confused with the Major League Rugby chairman of the board of directors and Free Jacks. Majority owner Eric Anderson, but a different Eric Anderson. How did this group come about? So um, I've been working in this area for, for a number of years now, um, and particularly interested in how we make the game safer for school children. So how can we uh, prevent concussions, prevent those um, injuries, primarily from tackling in rugby? Um, in the UK, 76% uh, of school children are forced, compelled, from age 11 to participate in contact rugby in the school environment. Um, but at the same time, there's no, um, there's no requirements for teachers to have any qualifications. They don't even need to have ever seen a rugby ball in their life to deliver this activity. So we've been working in this area since uh, 2016 and really passionately trying to, to prevent some of these uh, issues and to make the game safer for, for young people, but particularly players at all ages. And, um, and therefore, we, we come across this issue. Um, Dr. Pierce is, is one of the, the world's um, most renowned neurologists in concussion, and um, hopefully he's blushing at my wonderful compliments today. And, and therefore, we've, we've worked with, with Dr. Pierce on this because it's important that we, we have the right people at the table doing this work. All right, so let's get to the scandal. <laughs> you know... Yeah. You guys say you've unearthed something here. Uh, we've spoken about it off camera, but I'd like to hear it from you guys. You guys are like the Woodward and Bernstein of, of concussions, and it involves World Rugby, the RFU, and the RFU Championship, the second-tier professional setup in England. Yeah, so last year we, uh, a paper was released around the tackle height trial in the championship. And the trial basically lowered the uh, permitted height of the tackle from the neck to, to the, the armpit nipple line. 
Um, and this was implemented by uh, England Rugby and World Rugby, or the RFU and World Rugby, um, on the championship themselves. And uh, I basically read the paper and smelt a rat and said, there's something not right in here, we need to do some digging. So uh, myself and some colleagues did a bit of digging into, into the trial and some of the ethical practices as part of that trial. And we found that the RFU and World Rugby in, in partnership, as these, these organisations are, basically imposed this experiment, intervention, on these players without allowing them to, one, understand the risks that there might be caused, but two, these players have no choice. This, they were made to do it. If they didn't, then they wouldn't play the games, they wouldn't be fulfilling their contract, and I'm sure their clubs would have happily sent them on their way packing. So this was really something that these players didn't have any choice about. It gets worse when you recognise that this increased the risk of concussion, which is already really bloody high, by 30%. So not only are they playing a dangerous game in rugby and taking lots of risks with their brains and their bodies by doing that, they then were put into an experiment which made it worse. I'm going to play the role of American lawyer, a.k.a. I'm not, some people say that. I'm not. I don't want to get sued. Uh, so I was looking at the application that was filled out for the permission to do research, right? Which you have to do, I guess it's with the, what, the Department for Health, and it's the Research Ethics Approval Committee for Health application form. Yep. And scrolling down to the, the methods box, I just picked out a thing that said, player consent forms will be distributed to players either in paper version or electronically through a Bristol online survey form, depending on the preference of the club. Was that consent to partake or per consent to release the data? So, so that permission was given um, to allow uh, the University of Bath and England Rugby to study the data of um, injuries within the championship and and on that form though they actually talk about there's going to be no changes or additional risks um, in the environment so changing the game which is this experiment that they've conducted was never shared and told to the players in a way that they could choose to participate or not dr pierce is it is this putting the the cart before the horse is this making the players into lab rats unknowingly oh well i mean absolutely i mean the, what, what we have to uh, assume in any research is that uh you know you first do no harm and uh this implies that if people are going to be involved in any sort of research study they need to know up front what the risks are but what also what the benefits are. So, you know, there was always going to be some potential risks of, of being involved in a study, even in my studies in the laboratory where, you know, I, I test uh, athletes and, and retired athletes. You know, I need to give them upfront exactly what could, could go wrong, even if it's 0.0001 of a percent chance. Uh, I still need to be upfront with that. Um, but at the same time, if anyone is going through the study and they feel uncomfortable, they can withdraw at any point without consequence. And I think that's what's been missing here. Um, you know, so uh, I think that's one of the issues that we have to deal with is if the players were fully uh, know, knowing upfront what was happening in terms of the data collection.
and that the data collection was going to get published as well in a in a scientific journal. So the the beef here is that World Rugby, the RFU, changed a law in the tackle height. And I'm glad, Dr. White, that you said nipple line before I did because I just I, I was going to crack up like a five-year-old kid when I said nipple <laughs> line. They lowered the tackle height below the nipple line without the consent of players. And the result was there were 30% more concussions after the law change. And you guys picked up on a research paper in what the British Journal of Sports Medicine, right? Mm -hmm. That you challenged their ethics if you will, on this research and then got together and made your own paper as, as an answer, which was published last week. And there has been no response to that so far. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, World Rugby, England Rugby and the University of Bath, which are the kind of three institutions or corporations that are intertwined here, none of them have made any kind of formal or public statement to uh, one, explain their actions of why they've done this, but two, to explain um, the next part of the story, which is they've actually amended uh, retrospectively their research report to cover up this problem. What's the impact of that? Yeah, so, so um, they basically changed their research report from calling it an intervention, which is a, an experiment, to calling it an observation. Now, what they're basically, an observation study would be like standing at the side of the road and counting how many people drive past holding a Starbucks coffee or, or you know, how many people are driving red cars. That's an observation study. And the, the ethical standards around consent for that are much lower than if I was to stand at the side of the road and stop every car, because of course that has impacts on people's lives where they might be late for work or they might be scared and subsequently have a an argument and it might become confrontational. So these are very different kinds of studies. Now, of course, I've used a, quite a, a Bain example that, that doesn't have a huge impact on life. But of course, what they've done is they've changed the game and it's made it much more dangerous for these athletes. And the consequences of that are somewhat long-term um, and, and that's a problem. And Dr. Pierce, I did notice in uh, in my studies, that there was a, f a paper first published in June of June of 2017 on research that they had done on concussions by just observing and not having a law changed, and then observing, and there were there players were given the opportunity to consent for that. Yeah, I mean, we, we had no problems with that. I mean, uh, Adam probably can give a, a little bit more detail specifically on on that. Uh, on that example, but from a from a general scientific perspective, we have you know, in terms of of the design in in uh, observe, observing what they are uh, were doing and and what they found. Um, again, as as Adam said, there's no it, it's a lower level of of concern that we have because they're not intervening in in the actual uh, players themselves and, and then looking at potential risks as a result of that. So um, one of the other things too that we need to be aware of is that when you have a paper published, to have it then rewritten after it's been accepted and published in science is actually, you know, a, a big no. 
you know, you can't just go back and just rewrite sections because the editors have come to you and said, oh, look, you know, people have made some complaints, but we'll give you a chance to rewrite. I mean, if you could imagine another example with COVID with a number of the, the studies that have, have, have been disasters, if the editors of those journals to those people said, oh, look, your, your COVID study was pretty shit, but uh, yeah, we, we'll let you rewrite it. Um, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And I think that's one of the other things that we people have got to understand in the, in the wider community is that uh, we have standards that we have to maintain and we can't just keep rewriting it because it's inconvenient. The data wasn't wrong, right? They did find that lowering the tackle height below the nipple line increased the propensity for cushions by 30% and then stopped the study, which yeah. begs another question on the ethical aspect of this. Yeah, and, and, and we absolutely support the intention to try and make the game safer for players. Um, we're really pleased and, and we commend them for redu or stopping the study early um, because they recognise this increased risk of concussion. But none of that detracts from the fact that they still implemented it without the players giving their consent. They, they made them lab rats against their will, and that's a problem. Um, and, and these players, and, and, and just to be clear, when, when these players spoke to the RFU before the study was conducted, they knew that this would increase the risk of concussion, and they were right. So the fact that the RFU spoke to them and said, you know, we're thinking about lowering the tackle height, and the, the players themselves said, this is going to increase the risk of concussion, and the RFU went ahead anyway, it's just nuts. How do we know that the players... Is it documented that the players said this would increase the concussion rate or injury rate? How do, where, where can we look at them? Yeah, so, so they actually reported that in their, their initial paper. Oh. Um, it's in so, the last paragraph. Yeah, it's so... It's the last so, paragraph of the uh, discussion section. So it's in print. Yeah. Where were the agents? Where was the RPA, the, the Rugby Players Association, in all this? Well, Matt, that's a question that myself, Alan, and the rest of the author team have been asking over and over this last week is, you know, what were they doing and what was their role? And, you know, why, what, why did they let this go ahead? Um, because it, it, it certainly doesn't sound like it's in the best interest of the players. Is the Players Association in, the, in Britain funded by the National Sporting Organisation? Yeah, there are, there are money uh, relationships between the RFU and the RPA. So, yeah. So, the reason I ask that is because, uh, you know, in Australia, the AFL Players Association, the Rugby League Players Association, Rugby Union Players Association, all are funded in a majority of, by the National Sporting Organisation. So, whilst uh, they will make some noise, they won't push too hard obviously, because the, uh, you know, they don't want to lose a significant amount of funding. I think uh, in Australia, possibly only the Cricketers Association, and don't quote me on that, but I think the Cricketers Association is the only one that's self-funded. So, you know, they aren't at the, uh, the beck and call of, of the National Sporting Organisation. So I think sometimes when you have players, unions, players, associations, uh, you know, they're in a, in a tight spot in trying to advocate, but only to a certain point. Um, and that, and that's, that's something that, that is an issue, I think, around the world for players' rights. I want to leave this as a cliffhanger and take a quick break. And we'll be right back. 
If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig and Whistle, on West 36th Street. And we are back. Matt McCarthy with Drs. Alan Pierce and Adam White. Is there an entanglement of interests between the researchers and corporate interests, perhaps, in this whole mess? Yeah, absolutely. We can see that the RFU and World Rugby use the same researchers for all of their work. And, and some of these guys um, started out as researchers within their universities. Um, they've progressed very quickly in that role and, and subsequently got to be uh, you know, the highest ranked professors that they can. But now they're also on the payrolls directly with these sporting organizations. And, and that's a problem. And, and it's just like the way that the tobacco industry or Big Pharma has brought in various scientists to basically say the messages that they want saying to the public. Um, and, you know, it gives them credibility by doing so because they've usually come from institutions previously, but they're absolutely on the payroll. Was there an intent to mislead or was the intent there to find out how to reduce concussions? When I read the paper, um, I was as I said, firstly surprised that we were, you know, it was going to be published because something like this would be like, well, oh, geez, you know. I thought, well, they're pretty brave in, in publishing this, but obviously they're, they're trying to um, almost demonstrate how diligent they are because, um, and this might be a little bit technical, but the 30% is, is um, you know, obviously a very notable increase in concussions from a real-world perspective, but uh, from a mathematical perspective, they were saying that there was no difference in the concussions because it wasn't statistically significant. So they were playing this academic line that, uh, well, you know, yeah, they went up by 30%, but it wasn't really, you know, meaningful um, as we talk about in, in academia. So I think it's actually blown up in their face. And I'll be interested to see what Adam, Adam sort of gets, you know, his perception of that. Let me go into the role of the player. You know, to be honest with you, I've had a lot of concussions. I've been knocked out at least five times. Uh, if a coach walked into the dressing room, if we had a dressing room, and said, uh, guys, uh, we got some researchers, scientists that are going to be following you guys uh, basically about injuries and concussions and stuff. Oh, and by the way, you can only tackle below the nipple line. Uh, we'd all go, oh, all right, okay. Well, I mean, for my university, that wouldn't be allowed. Um, whenever I've done research, whether it's observational or interventional, like for example, last year I did an observational study where we gave uh, a football team um, mouth guards that, that picked up biomechanical data so we could look at uh, concussions through uh, the mouth guard reading the, 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 the impacts. I had to get not only the club's permission, but I had to get every player's permission individually as well. So my university would not allow just the club to go, yep, no worries. And, you know, as your, as your example is, the, the coach would walk in and go, okay, everyone, you're in this study now, go for it. In schools, what we're finding is teachers are walking into the classroom, into the changing rooms and saying, today we're going to do tackling guys. And in that room, you'll have people that are big, you'll have people that are small, and they go out and they do tackling. And that's why we've got an issue with this problem, because there is no informed consent. And there will be people sat there going, huh, what? Do I really have to do this? Mm, I'm not so sure myself. But because they're in that environment where the coach is telling them that they're doing it and the players are all around them, you know, it's very difficult to opt out. 
you know, it's just like when we're in the clubhouse and, you know, someone decides it's a great idea to do shots of whiskey and you're thinking, oh my God, the hangover in the morning. But you never say no. You always do the shot of whiskey. Is it free? <laughs> of course it's free, Matt. You would definitely do it, wouldn't you? But, but that's part of the issue is, is that peer pressure that pushes those players onto doing it and, and therefore reduces their agency or their ability to, to withdraw. What's the answer? Because I'm reading in the research that it's, it's stuff that's pretty common sense or, or it makes perfect sense when you think about it in retrospect on the causations of, of the concussions. It's the upright head-to-head. It's the head hitting the ground. It's the head hitting the knee. The thing that I, I thought was surprising was that it was more 70% the tackler than the ball carrier. What's the answer? It's a contact sport. It's not tennis. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. And it's one that, you know, everybody across the spectrum of sport and, and head injuries are, are currently grappling with is how can we make these sports safer for, for athletes? Um, some of the things that I would recommend would be reducing the exposure to tackling. If we can reduce the, the number of tackles that take place, then we'll reduce the number of concussions. And then it's also about reducing the velocity of those tackles. You know, if we, can, if we can somehow make the forces lower by reducing the speed or the strength and power that goes into that tackle, then, then we're going to see a reduction in concussion. Um, so things like not doing so much tackling in training or limiting the number of tackling in training, et cetera, et cetera, would be, would be really positive movements for preventing concussion. The answer, I guess, in terms of this research is we need to take away the, the control of research away from the sporting bodies. And they absolutely should be funding it, but it should be independent research conducted by academics who are not entangled in this corporate world. Because, of course, the RFU doesn't want to reduce the, the distance between players because we want players running because it looks good and it sells well. But for the players' well-being, what we should be doing is reducing the velocity of those hits and making it a little bit more scrappy, and, and, and that would be better for the athletes, although it would be worse for the spectator. So you're saying the offside isn't five metres back any longer. That could reduce it. And, you know, one would argue, well, they're going to just be all over the ball carrier immediately. But I could say, well, you could pop a kick over their head, or you, if you break a tackle, you're in the open. Yep. So you could make that argument. But you're not suggesting, sir, that we go back to the days of no lift lineouts. Uh, we're, not, we're not suggesting that. There are many opportunities and things that we should look at um, and explore. And we should be absolutely looking at anything that will reduce the risk of concussion. I guess an understanding of, of um, penalising it and not glorifying it either too. And that's one of the big issues I've got here in Australia is that we're still glorifying the big hits and the, the players that are concussed or what we call slung tackle. You know, they get slinged to the ground and, and essentially knocked out, gets put in the highlight footage a lot, uh, you know, rather than trying to highlight the, the guy who evades the opponents and, and kicks a, a, a torpedo, you know, 56 yeah. metres out. So that's what we should be trying to address, the excitement of the game rather than just the, the brutality of it. This is not a game that you want to think too much. You have to react when you're playing. If you go into a locker room of professional players that are used to playing a certain way their entire lives and tell them, okay, you got to change this up, they're going to get hurt changing that up. Whereas if you start 
with the law change with youth rugby instead, that might make more sense. But to go in and say to somebody, okay, uh, you can only hit with your left shoulder now or something along those lines, you're going to get injuries. And you're, you're changing, you're, you're, you know, a player in, going into contact. Is they, you can't be thinking or she can't be thinking, uh, can I hit this way or I can't hit this way? It, it's got to be in an eye blink. So, yeah, you, 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 you're, you're not right. not an easy thing, right? It, it, this isn't an easy thing. And, and, and what's been evident in this law trial is as soon as you move something that seems really quite common sense, if we lower the tackle height, then, then it will decrease the risk of concussions. It sounds really simple. But let's be honest, rugby or Aussie rules football or American football, these are games that are dynamic. The, whilst the tackler is trying to put himself in a safe position to make the tackle, the, the ball carrier or the defender is trying to essentially do the opposite. They want to put the tackler in the worst place they can to hope that they don't make the tackle. So, so every... Right, every when they have a choke tackle and the player can't get to the ground. So when I'm going up against a guy, it's almost like I'm wrestling and tackling at the same time. I want to keep him up. I Absolutely. want to keep that player up and get my team around him and turn the ball over that way too. Yeah, so, so, so there are... It, to, to change the game, it is going to be a long-term or, or a, you know, it's not going to be done overnight. We, we need to think about this and we need to develop young people... But we've got to be clear that these athletes have a real appetite to make the game safer. Elite athletes today are more worried about their brain health than ever before. You know, they're, they're, they're seeing the, the reports in the press. They're seeing their, their ex-colleagues and teammates having huge issues, and um, whether that's stress, depression, anxiety, memory loss, all sorts of things. And so these guys are concerned but they also love their game and they're in a real difficult space. So we need to do everything we can to make that as safe as possible for them so that we can continue these games that we all love, but also these players aren't going to be screwed in their forties, fifties and sixties. Well, I, I gotta, I gotta say uh, when, when I was playing active full on rugby, not this, the old boy stuff that we go out there and fart around the field and talk trash. Uh, we had no – there was – the concussion thing was a farce. I, I, I would go back to the opposite scrum. And my teammates were like, like giggling, and the guys on the other team would say, hey, guys, he's on – come on, he's – you know, it was, it was like, okay, can you smell – what day of the week is it, blah, 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 and you stay in the match. You didn't come out. You know, and our substitution rules were – laws were completely different too. You didn't – nobody came out because you didn't have any subs. But – it's getting better. It's and you guys talking about this stuff and World Rugby and the RFU trying to figure out stuff to, to, to reduce concussions. It's, it's in the mainstream thought conversation. It's out there, whereas we used to just poo-poo it. And that's what, unfortunately, a lot of people of my generation and older are experiencing the after effects where hopefully this kind of research and this kind of stuff will eliminate that. So just in conclusion... We're not saying that World Rugby and the RFU had bad intentions, are we? Or or are we? I have no reason to believe that they have bad intentions. And, you know, every effort that we can do to, to make the game safer for the players is, is important and we should encourage that. But it's about how we do that that's the important issue. It's about ensuring that 
their intentions are deployed in a way that is safe, ethical, and not webbed in this corporate entanglement where they're basically dictating who does the research and how. Are we going to see lawsuits coming out because of this? I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I, it, it really depends. That it really depends on how badly these players feel uh, cheated, misled, um, you know, and it, and it would certainly be up to those players um, to, to do that. So then, and, and in, in all fairness, we did reach out to the parties involved, the RFU, World Rugby, haven't heard anything back yet. Uh, it's not an easy topic to, to address. Gents, do we know whether uh, rugby league, footy, or union has a higher rate of concussion? That's our next study, ladies and gentlemen. On that note, on behalf of Dr. Adam White, Dr. Alan Pierce, I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up in New York City. Stay safe, everybody.